Welcome back to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. For this episode, The Welcome Stranger, we dropped by Bendigo Writers Festival with the Fifth Estate's host, Sally Warhaft, for a chat about alienation, social estrangement, and the way we understand and deal with people we consider strangers in Australian society. Our guests for this week are Susan Carland, William Maley, and Rebecca Huntley. Susan Carland is a lecturer and researcher at Monash University's National Centre for Australian Studies and the author of Fighting Islam, Women, Faith and Sexism. William Maley is Professor of Diplomacy at the Australian National University, the Vice President of the Refugee Council of Australia and the author of the book What is a Refugee? And Rebecca Huntley is a social researcher, the Head of Research at Essential Media and the author of Still Lucky, Why You Should Feel Optimistic About Australia and Its People. Let's duck into the conversation a few minutes in, as our panellists ask, can facts triumph over fear? The persistence of fear for some people in the face of facts is the thing that means that for somebody like me, who measures opinion and thinks that facts can win the day, it is quite confounding. Mm. And I imagine it, might, it may be similar for all of us. We're all academics or academically trained. Yeah. And so I'm I, a I, failed academic. Season, <laughs> so, you know. Are you doctor? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but so, and I imagine a lot of people here as well, we sort of, you know, if, if you're well educated, you sort of feel, well, once there's evidence, yeah. we cannot refute that. And so how do we have a meaningful public conversation where in so many circumstances, it does seem that the facts are relevant? I don't know. How do we? I think actually we're witnessing something in Australia, which is a bit dangerous at the moment uh, uh, and you see it very clearly with someone like Senator Malcolm Roberts uh, where <laughs> I just have to laugh I just can't make sure no other response I understand, laugh, I understand. Uh, who has grasped a little bit of the philosophy mm. of science which says that scientific propositions are, are falsifiable they're open to challenge which leads him then to jump to the view that nothing is ever established satisfactorily scientifically. So you can believe the, the moon is made of green cheese and maybe the evidence is going to come along one of these days. And, uh, and there was an interesting exchange in a parliamentary committee not long ago that, that uh, didn't get as much attention as it deserved, that uh, Senator Roberts said to the chief scientist, do you believe in having an open mind? And the chief scientist said, yes, but not so open that your brains slop out. <laughs> Rebecca, <laughs> I don't know quite how to follow yeah, that's that. That's right, what do you say? Uh, Rebecca, you talked about fear, mm. and I, 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 Susan, I'll, I'll throw this one to you, about what it is you think people are actually afraid of, and, and if it really is fear. In, in general, or yeah. particularly about in, Muslims? Well, it, well in, yeah. in relation to your work, yeah. uh, Muslims, but also <laughs> refugees and asylum seekers. Well, I, I think it does come down to just fear of the other. You look different to me. I don't know much about you. And what I do know, or what I think I know, looks terrifying. You're either coming here to steal our jobs, take over, our, change our society, or change our way of life, or kill us. That seems to be the general perception. And I suppose if that is honestly what you thought, it would be scary. Like, and it doesn't matter even if these, um, even if these uh, beliefs are challenged with facts. And when people say, no, you know, we're not trying to cancel Christmas, or as you said, you know, refugees aren't, are actually here to work and they want to contribute. When fear is an emotional 
response. And so sometimes you can't just throw facts at things to change. People can't change their emotional response just within the face of facts. When I see people talking about this uh, against uh, Muslim immigration or against asylum seekers, I don't recall ever having seen fear, what I would recognise as fear in the eyes of the person uh, speaking. I've seen anger. Uh, and defiance and a range of other things. But, but is that just... Is it fear presenting as anger? Like, if it is anger, what are they angry about? Well, I think this goes to a really interesting conversation that we've had and that Trump and Brexit have, have not started that conversation but focused on it, which is for the people who are who see issues around, let's say, immigration and issues around Muslim immigration in particular as the lens through which they see all political issues, right? So that's the, that's the issue and it organises how they feel about every other political issue almost. It's the issue that they vote on primarily. Whether that's around economic insecurity or is it about social and cultural insecurity? And most of the, and this is just, I've done a little bit of academic reading recently, most of it don't do much academic reading, but there was a very interesting study coming out of um, uh, Harvard by two senior political scientists that kind of aggregated all the electoral results in all of, a lot of European and, and um, Western, you know, other kind of countries like Canada and kind of looking at the rise of populist movements and what were they really, who was voting and why were they voting on? And they, they realised it was a complex network of economic insecurity issues, but that cultural and social issues dominated. So if you look what's happening in Charlottesville now, that has not been triggered by the rising cost of bread and milk. It has been triggered by, we want to get rid of a statue mm. of a Confederate you know, general. I mean, talk about symbolism. Right. I don't know if any of those... I wonder, the, the researcher in me wants to sit all those boys with those citronella candles running around and screaming. Do you know who Robert E. Lee is? Can you give me one fact about him? But it's a symbol of this sense of loss of status. And I think that that is... As much as it's dressed up around economic insecurity and those issues are significant, and I'd never diminish them, but we really have to think about, I think, what's happening here is this sense of loss of social and, social and cultural um, status and insecurity. And in a country like Australia, even though we're seeing greater economic inequality, it really has to, that really has to be at the core of what we're saying. Mm. And I wonder myself whether fear drives anger as well, because on the one hand we have, in many circles in Australia, a self-image of the courageous bronzed Aussie going out on the beaches of Gallipoli and taking on the enemy. But when it comes to responding to uh, social difference, very often we're looking at frightened little mice who are scared of the risk of a terrorist attack, even though for a given individual the risk of being caught up in a terrorist attack is statistically much less likely than being sat on by an escaped circus elephant. The, the, the risk <laughs> is much greater. And I think in a way people resent they're being fearful, and that translates that into anger towards yeah. other particular groups in a, in a very unpleasant kind of way. I wonder what is distinctively Australian about our uh, particular brand of, uh, of fear and response to these mm. issues. 
I think our geography has something to do with it. The fact that we are a big landmass with no land borders. You know, it's really interesting if you look back at the discussions around immigration at Federation, the way our politicians spoke about the fear of the Asian arrival and us being engulfed in a wave of Chinese immigration. It's, it's very interesting to look at the, the language that it was just given as a fact. This is going to happen. We need to stop it right from 1901. Um, and the way there have been echoes of that language um, in, throughout history in Australia, we've sort of gone backwards and forwards about um, our, our attitude towards immigration and, and arrival and where they come from. And I think it's really interesting that if you want to know where the psyche of us, where our hopes and our fears of a nation are at one point, look at our attitude towards immigration. So you can see where the nation felt comfortable and where we were more open and when we felt more fearful and when things closed down again. And you can trace that in... So if you look at our policy to immigration throughout Australia history from about Federation, you can see the psyche of the nation reflected. I think uh, George Megalogenis, he wrote a mm. whole book Did tracing he? that, yes. Oh, yeah. I thought I had a unique idea. It's a really interesting... Uh, you have a book, yeah. Rebecca, what about your research on this? I mean, you describe racism as our Achilles heel in an otherwise, you know, rather optimistic sort of portrait of Australia. Yeah, and I suppose I think I, I describe it for one of the... The core of some of the fear of immigration is the feeling that um, more doesn't equal more, but more equals less. So more people... And let's set aside where those people are coming from. The more people that come here, the less there's going to be for me. The irony, of course, is we're in a, a, a massive country that is, even by you know, very modest global standards, incredibly wealthy with great natural assets. And, um, uh, but we still fear that more people e equals less. And the, the, the more different those people are, the heightened our concern is that something will change. That is despite the fact when you talk to Australians, when they say, you know, these immigrants want to change our way of life, they want to take Santa Claus, they want to beat up Santa Claus, they want to beat up Santa Claus in front of groups of young children. You know, those kinds of really... I mean, the level of paranoia about taking away Christmas carols from childcare centres is, is so... It, it's constantly talked about, so it's hard not to laugh at it because it is, quite, it is kind of um, hysterical to some extent. I, I think that that sense also of Australia is this place that has always been on the edge of the world and slightly protected. So there was always this concept of Australia being kind of, you know, social laboratory and a white man's paradise. And if we just, um, you know, if we just control who comes here and seal the borders, we'll be able to protect that from a longer... For, for longer periods. And the other thing I find interesting is that when um, people reflect on how lucky we are and they look at other countries, they don't seem to then feel that that, that should give us confidence to have more people. It's more like, oh, we've got to keep things as the same. So there's a really interesting push and pull within the Australian community and the, the broader conversation, almost the Australian psyche, about how much, if we continue to grow and we continue to take people from other countries, we'll be able to retain this sense of what has kept us prosperous and safe for so long. And this is just a kind of ongoing conversation, and one in which our politicians seem 
largely incapable of engaging on in creative ways, and that's what we need, creative new ways to talk mm. about these questions with, a, with an increasingly anxious electorate. Mm. One of the implications of this is that we are probably much less individualist than our self-image would like us to think, that uh, this kind of way of thinking is very much a collectivist way of thinking. It values collective images of a society, and it also collectivises the other, that we don't recognise that, for example, in Muslims of the world, there's an incredibly diverse range of individuals that everyone lives simultaneously in a multiplicity of different social worlds, uh, and you only encounter, even in face-to-face -face meetings, a small fraction of what may be the world of an individual. We're all different people in the family, in the sporting club, in the workplace. Uh, we, not necessarily dramatically, but subtly. We, we differ, and it's only by knowing people as individuals and recognising their individuality that we can come to grips with that. And one of the things I find most alarming, really, is the extent to where, which we're presented, largely through media, with homogenised images of particular social groups rather than ones that recognise that there are lots of different people we call Asians, there are lots of different people we call Muslims, that there's no as it were, as essence that uh, defines people, but rather a sets of identifications that are central to who people are for themselves and for others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, the, and you would know this in all your work. I mean, in Australia, when you do spend time with asylum seekers and refugees, they're constantly talking about the effect that the imagery that, that is projected to us through the media affects their day-to-day -day lives. So. Um, about 18 months ago, I met a young woman who'd come from Iran. She came from a very wealthy middle-class family, university-educated artists. She was a um, designer um, of clothing, and then she came here. And what she actually kind of... She was a young, attractive woman, and when people found out she was a asylum seeker, they said, but you're so beautiful, or your English is so good, or what do you mean you went to university? And she said that even in a country where she's very, you know, she's, she's working and she's made her life, um, she just thinks there's this really pervasive view that an asylum seeker comes here, no ed not educated, not skilled, not capable to contribute, no capacity for English or capacity to learn mm. quickly. This woman went from some English to perfect English in 12 months. Um, so that has an extraordinary effect, alienating effect, on a group of people who could be extraordinary contributors to our society. Yeah. It's actually one of the ironies of the times we're living in, that if you look at the definition of refugee, uh, whilst the popular image of a genuine refugee may be somebody poor fleeing a war, in fact, neither of those has anything to do with the definition of a refugee. If all you're doing is fleeing a war zone, you're probably not legally a refugee because you might not have an individualised fear of being persecuted mm. as opposed to a, an apprehension about uh, endemic violence in a particular environment. Of course you can be a, a refugee with a political refugee for example uh, and a millionaire at the same time. Your book it does a marvellous job William of identifying that every single story is an individual one. Every person's an individual. But there yes. are uh, 
also some well-worn tracks, if you like. Um, I want to pick up on something, Rebecca, you said a few moments ago about uh, the political response and that we need a creative new way. Um, but I wonder, and in fact, William, again, it was you that got me thinking about this, that your interest in this issue was actually inspired by Sir Robert Menzies. Yes. Uh, and that... Uh, it was never a left-right issue in his day, uh, and in some respects it remains uh, that way, certainly amongst the major uh, parties with so much consensus on it. Uh, but I wonder if actually, uh, by looking back to the past, uh, we could get um, as much inspiration as a creative and new way of approaching these problems. Oh, yeah. Uh, in in 1949, Menzies was accused by Arthur Corwell of plotting to smash the white Australia policy because he and the opposition resisted a particularly nasty piece of legislation known as the Wartime Refugees Removal Bill, uh, under which the government was seeking, after an adverse High Court decision, to eject from Australia a woman called Mrs O'Keefe, who was uh, of non-white background but married to an Australian citizen. Uh, and uh, Menzies gave a speech in the House of Representatives in which he said what one wanted in this area was a policy approach which was measured and realised that all cases were different and recognised that if you tried rigidly to apply a principle without sensitivity to the distinctiveness of each individual case, you would simply discredit the law. Uh, and in a way you can look at that passage now and think if, if uh, Scott Morrison or Peter Dutton absorbed this particular way of thinking they would be the diametric opposite of what kind of human beings they proved to be. So I'm, I'm interested in, with the current discussion about the Citizenship Act in the Parliament, that doesn't seem to be the approach that the government's taking. I think that has a great deal to do with second preferences from One Nation candidates in the looming Queensland state election, really. Um, the, uh, it is actually one of the oddest kind of bills that's been brought in in recent times, and I suspect it will hit the deck fairly hard because it captures a vastly larger swathe of people than the government probably anticipated. So, for example, I have a recent PhD student who uh, graduated with an excellent doctorate. He's an Indian national. He's married to an Australian, he's a top specialist in strategic studies based in Canberra, but he can't apply for a job in the public service because uh, he's not a citizen yet and uh, the proposed citizenship bill would add years to the time he would have to wait in order to be eligible, so he'd probably go overseas eventually. And that's not the kind of person that the government was trying to target in order to pick up support from Hansonites. But uh, a lot of people like that have been caught in this net and I suspect that's why it won't get through the Senate. Um, there are some strange peculiarities about Australia and Australian politics. I mean, one of them, <laughs> the, the late great historian John Hurst identified Australians despite our, you know, the stereotype of, of, of a society of larrikins, that in fact we're one of the most obedient societies in the world. We were the first to put on seatbelts when we were told to put on seatbelts. We were the first to not ever smoke at the footy when we were told don't do that. We really do what we're told. Uh, and Rebecca, you, your research identifies consistently, despite Australians' uh, lack of love towards politicians, we expect government to solve our problems. 
And yet we're living in a time where it, it just seems increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for government to solve any problem, even a problem where you have both major parties in agreement, a vast majority of the population in agreement, uh, and still you can't get a, a piece of legislation over the line. What, what do you do with all of that in relation to this? Um, yes. So I think that in terms of that inability of, of government to move, I think that part of that's about some of the pro problems with internal machinations of the political parties. Um, and I think that to some extent we need to think about what's happening in the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, for example, as the two major parties that still control most things as, as separate. Um, but I think that the, the interest that the electorate still have in government playing a, uh, a leading role in our lives has both good and bad um, outcomes and good and bad effects, I suppose. I think one of the things that it, it does do is that we, and going to your first question about are we more or less tolerant now than we've been in the past, I think that um, while some of the themes around things about asylum seekers and, and refugees are familiar, it's certainly 20 years since Tampa of both political parties playing in to this um, kind of dialogue has had its effect. So we, even though we hate politicians, we're still affected by the language and the rhetoric that they employ. It is much harder now than it was for my predecessor, Hugh McKay, to have a conversation about immigration that doesn't slide almost immediately into terrorism. And even if you kind of stop people at different stages to say, why are you making this association between people coming in and somebody who lives down the street and you know Christmas carols and terrorism, they really do push back. Those connections and the, the expansion of the discussion around asylum seekers to include a myriad of issues that actually have nothing to do with them, and that's been the consequence of, of two decades, um, is really worrying. So we've got an electorate that still take their lead from politicians, still want government to do good things, which is not bad, but then we've got a politics that seems to be constipated, I suppose, is probably the worst, <laughs> worst, um, probably the best way I could describe it. And um, oddly enough, you know, one of the things, and I'll stop talking for a minute, one of the things that I think has occurred to me when I was writing the book, I was writing a chapter on, um, on um, job insecurity, and that basically every Australian feels a level of job insecurity that previous Australians just wouldn't have felt. Um, and regardless of where you are, public service. The only people who feel absolutely secure in their job in Australia are Labor and Liberal politicians in safe seats. Um, they're the only people who could genuinely be said to have organised themselves a job for life, and it makes them enormously conservative. While we are actually being innovative and agile mm. in the way that we approach our lives, because we realise that those days are gone, Politicians don't, you know, for whatever reason, even though 70% of Tony Abbott's electorate um, think this postal vote is, well, postal survey, that's what I'm going to call it, the worst postal survey ever, ever funded by the Australian taxpayer. Mm. Um, even though 70% of his electorate are against it, he, for whatever reason, feels very safe in that job, and I think he'll be there for some time to come. Mm. Um, Susan, 
Becca just talked about the way things slide in on a... Um, tell us about that in relation to, to your book and uh, the things that, that just slip in there in people's assumptions about Muslim women. Yeah. Um, so with my book, I interviewed uh, 23 women, activists, theologians, writers and bloggers about how they fight sexism in the Muslim community, why they do it, who supports them, those sort of things. And one of the things that was interesting that came out of it was that uh, the, the, the women spoke about this issue of the double bind, where um, if they spoke openly about an issue that was happening in the Muslim community, it could actually make things worse in the public perception. So the example is that, say, a woman wanted to speak openly about domestic violence in the Muslim community. They want to speak openly about the issues, maybe publicise events they were having. They knew that by doing so, they would be reinforcing the negative perception about Muslim women, that they're all meek, victims and cowering, and that all Muslim men are violent oppressors. And so the issue for them was, well, do I speak openly about this thing and risk reinforcing that negative stereotype, which has real-world knock-on effects of genuine um, physical and verbal abuse on the street, particularly for Muslim women, or do I say nothing and we don't address this issue in the community? And so those are the issues where things slide in, where there are all these layers that the women I interviewed had to deal with. They had to deal with issues of sexism within the Muslim community, but then also, I guess, like a gendered Islamophobia in the outside of the community and constantly weighing up, what do I do in this given circumstance? And, and you know, they would often speak to me, um, and even since then, other women I've spoken to as well, who've sort of said, how much more time would we have? How much more would we have achieved if we didn't have to keep performing to this way that we are perceived um, as, as a terrorist or as a, an oppressed Muslim when we keep having to reassure people that we're not that or prove to people we're not that. It takes up so much of our time and our existence that it's almost like we're operating at half capacity. Um, and so all those extra things that get slipped in there have significant effects in, in women or the lives of anyone who's trying not just to live their life but trying to make society better in some way. It's, it's a hobbling. Is that true of refugees as well, William? Uh, perhaps not to the same extent because people who are of refugee background can at a certain point blend into a community much more readily than if people have, for example, distinctive dress or distinctive uh, patterns of worship or things like that that allow them to be targeted by those who are looking for a, a target. So I think that in a way it is easier for people of refugee background to uh, move into a, a, a less public kind of sphere. But of course there are a very large number of people of refugee background who are subject to official marginalisation through, for example, being given visas which don't allow them to work, so that they are, in, even in a voluntary capacity for community organisations, so they are entirely dependent upon handouts from charitable organisations, and that is not only soul-destroying, but it also uh, limits their ability to feel that they're being absorbed into a community. So they may be below the, the radar, below the horizon, but they don't have a sense of social integration. And Was there, can I ask you a question? Yeah, Was, sure. Is there an extent amongst refugees of feeling they have to perform to be the exceptional refugee? Like, I'm yeah. here as a refugee and I'm a cardiologist. Did they ever feel they had the permission just to be the average or even below average citizen? Mm -hmm. Do, are refugees allowed to do that? I think they are because a lot of people, once they obtain permanent residence and then 
citizenship don't particularly uh, desire thereafter to be identified as, as refugees. Yeah. They don't. They feel that that just as their legal status as a refugee has come to an end because they've been granted the citizenship of another country, so their social identity as a refugee gives way to other kinds of uh, daily identities that are part of their experience. So I have a refugee friend in Canberra uh, who's been in Australia for 35 years, and he's a pharmacist, and he's fully occupied uh, getting his daughter through the final year of medicine and uh, getting his wife on the plane to visit a sister in the United States and things like that. It's not as if uh, he has an ongoing sense of being a refugee that becomes part of his identity. I think uh, with the passage of time that disappears in the face of other kinds of identifications that become more and more salient as somebody is engaged in everyday life. I think that's different if one is talking about religious communities because ongoing membership of a religious community is something with its own duties, responsibilities, rituals and dimensions. Yeah. I'd only add to that, the one thing I've noticed when I've done focus groups with asylum seekers and refugees is that they spend about 15 minutes telling you how great the country is and how grateful they are to be here, those are the performance, mm. and you want to say, just drop that, I understand, I'm not going <laughs> to let... Just tell me what you don't like about the country. Yeah. They're quite tentative about it, but I do remember one time um, being with a whole group of um, Somali men in their 40s, and they were a lot of stuff about how great the country is. We're so grateful to be here. And I said, OK, and after about 25 minutes, I got their um, trust and said that I wasn't going to lash out at them. Because there's such a fear that if you say something, you're told to leave. And they're not just a nice, not nicely told to leave. And um, we were talking about, um, you know, how they learnt English and they said they watched a lot of um, free-to-air television. And they said, oh, we really like the free-to-air television here. And I said, OK, is there anything you don't like? He said, I don't like um, Home and Away. This guy said, I don't like Home and Away. And I said, oh, why don't you like Home and Away? He says, I don't understand it. Just, it's baffling to me. Why do all these good-looking, wealthy white people living by the sea, why are they so unhappy? <laughs> 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 I just laughed because sometimes I want to say that to when I meet a lot of white, wealthy, <laughs> good-looking people who live by the sea who whinge about, oh, the cost of living and the cost of bananas. Anyway, but it was a very, illuminating, yeah. a very illuminating comment by yeah. an asylum seeker yeah. about the country. I do think for a lot of refugees, uh, despite all the difficulty that comes from uh, anathematisation in mass media and things like that, Australia is still... Uh, paradise it compared is. to the yeah. situations yeah. from which many yeah. of them have come in the past, and there is a disposition yeah. to see what's good Absolutely. rather than what's bad. And a desperate, and you know, a real desire to make a contribution, to yeah. work, a desperate desire to work, a desperate desire to raise their kids um, knowing other Australians, a desperate actually desire to make friends with other Australians That's on the whole. And what you then find is that you get these two different Australia's which people can experience. On the one hand, there's what comes out through the mass media and talkback radio and occasional drops in the letterbox. But on the other hand, there's the next door neighbour who may well be friendly and helpful. And then there are the other parents at the school if kids are going to school and that kind of thing. There are dense social networks that people can develop, which at a certain point become much more a marker of the real Australia to them than what media might be conveying. And a lot of refugees also, 
to the extent that they're interested in politics, are still interested in the politics of the country from which they've come, rather than Australian politics. They can find Australian politics incomprehensible. <laughs> like Home and Away. Why don't, are all those wealthy all? Yeah. people who live by the sea so That's unhappy? That's right. They, they often, <laughs> again, something which is underestimated with, uh, with new arrivals is that a lot of what we grow up accepting as the history of the country is something which, if they learn it at all, they're going to have to learn out of books. They don't grow up with Australian history or an understanding of institutions, and you can live your life perfectly well without accumulating that kind of detailed factual knowledge. So it's, it's relatively easy to opt out of Australian political life, keep an interest up in what may be going on on the ground in Somalia or Afghanistan mm -hmm. or Iraq or or Cambodia or mm. somewhere like that. Although do it's you much easier to do that. Although I don't know if you find this, but when, when you do meet somebody who's, let's say, talks about the experience of having gone from being a refugee um, to, you know, gone from being a asylum seeker to an accepted refugee to actually getting the right to vote, they talk, again, it's that reflection, they talk about just what it feels like to turn up and vote and how great an experience mm. is. There's no violence, there's no intimidation, it's easy. Um, they may or may not eat the sausage, um, you know. Yeah. So, and then again, it just actually makes you just a little bit embarrassed about how much we complain yeah. um, about these institutions. And they actually talk about in quite moving terms about mm. what that's like to feel but to be able to do that. Oddly enough, that's a civic rather than a political No, exactly. That's exactly right. It doesn't matter about who they were voting for. Yeah, it was right. a sense mm. of... I'm in a society that's actually a peaceful, stable society where, I'm, where can, there's no barriers for me to be involved. No. Yeah. You can change the government without yeah. bloodshed. Yeah, it's a huge mm. thing. Mm. In fact, you can change it numerous times. <laughs> we could have a new <laughs> Prime Minister any moment, really, without bloodshed. <laughs> could I make one quick comment about a, 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 the broader political environment, too? It seems to me that one of the big shift that we're actually witnessing uh, now is a consequence of things that happened in late 70s and the early 80s. Two things separately but related happened at that time. One was that the World War II generation disappeared from Parliament. And these were people who, despite their party antagonisms, had actually had the experience of serving a higher course than party politics. And there were a lot of ex-service personnel in the Parliament until uh, 1977, 1980, 1983. Most disappeared around the 83 election if they were still there. Uh, and that meant that more and more uh, membership of parliament is going to people whose careers have been built not in service to anyone else, but to the party. Mm. And a study done by Pakulski and Tranter some years ago showed that more and more MPs are drawn from a very narrow gene pool, which is ministers' offices, uh, and not what we'd consider the real world. That then occurred at roughly the same time that public funding of political parties was brought in. Mm. And when you combine compulsory voting with public funding of parties, parties don't need members. Because compulsory voting gets their supporters out to vote on polling day and public funding pays the core expenses of the party. So parties begin to drift into patronage networks. And once major parties become more and more like patronage networks, the very best people in society don't aspire to be candidates for those parties because uh, no matter what your skills and ability, you run the risk of being blocked by somebody who's been cultivated by a factional boss. Uh, and these kind of changes 
over time lead to a situation in which the political environment is actually a very different one from that which we venerate from the past. Mm. Uh, mm. William uh, writes in his book that he doesn't believe politics can solve this problem at, mm. at this time and that it'll be through a recovery of moral sentiment. Do you think that's possible, Susan? Well, I guess I would like to hope that it is. Um, it's, a, it's a pity that there is such widespread disillusionment about politicians at the moment. It's actually quite sad. Like, it would be lovely if we could all look to our politicians and our political leaders with hope and expectation. Um, but there does seem to be a... You know, a frustration at the lack of moral leadership we seem to be seeing with our politicians, that it seems to be a lot more about maintaining your position than, than what is necessarily what is for the good of the country or, or leading as opposed to following. Um, and so I guess I, I would hope that either moral leadership will come from our politicians or it will come from elsewhere because I think as people that is what we want. We want to be able to look to people who will... Um, guide us as a people and our nation in a certain direction. And if we're not getting that from our politicians, then other people will spring up to make that happen. Um, and I guess I hope that that does happen one way or another because the alternative is a sense of despair and, and no one wants to live, you know, we, none of us want home and away syndrome. We mm. all want to be rich people feeling positive about things, you know, not feeling, not being rich people by the sea feeling sad about things. So I, I do hope that that we are, I feel that we're in a state of somewhat moral leadership vacuum. Someone needs to step in there, and if not politicians, then somebody else. There is very little sign of it, though, isn't there? And I, I'm, I, um, I mean, that one of the things that seems evident now, too, is that Australia, uh, for once, is leading, uh, and, and, in fact, our attitudes towards these issues are being picked up elsewhere, um, as a fantastic way to treat strangers. <laughs> um, what, uh, perhaps William, I'll go to you on this, is the, the relationship between Australian politics and world politics? Look, I think there is a wider problem in terms of international influences uh, in affecting the domestic politics in a country like Australia that that uh, when, for example, you have alliance relationships with countries that have quixotic leaders, that then begins <laughs> to affect one's uh, orientation. I was just thinking about this this morning when, when uh, reading the report of the, the Prime Minister saying that he might not be able to do that much campaigning in respect of his plebis survey because uh, too uh, busy. he's a busy man. And I mm. thought, what's he doing? You know, fighting North Korea or something like that? And, um, and, uh, to some degree, one's freedom of action can be limited by one's disposition to judge one's worth in terms of what alliance partners think or what politicians of similar ilk in other countries might think. And I, I was always struck by the comment that the physicist Richard Feynman reco uh, recorded that his wife had made to him when um, she said, what do you care what other people think? Uh, and part, I think, of the problem we face these days is that there are an awful lot of politicians who, instead of starting from first principles and say, what is the right thing to do, start by saying, 
what steps can I adopt that will either win the most support or alienate the fewest voters? And that's not a basis for positioning oneself morally, and it's not a position that a strong leader would ever think. And in fact, it's the precise problem of newspapers as well, where editors now give their readership what they think they want, when in the past they decided what the reader needed to see. Yeah, I, I remember during the Kosovo campaign back in 1998, speaking to a, 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 a cabinet minister in Australia who had been in conversation with the NATO Secretary General at the time, uh, Lord Robertson. And Robertson had said to President Clinton, uh, when will you make use of air power during the Kosovo campaign? And Clinton said, oh, we couldn't possibly do that. We haven't yet received the results of the focus groups. <laughs> and I think focus so groups are terrific for learning about opinion, but leaders are not driven by focus groups. It's, it's like Napoleon III's comment, he said, I must follow the crowd since I am their leader. Well, Maybe as somebody who conducts focus groups, I might jump in there. I suppose, yeah. um, I think it's not the problem that our politicians are strategic. You know, it's probably unrealistic to think that they're not going to approach any issue that comes across their desk in a strategic way. So um, what is the problem is that what is morally right is left out completely. What you want is a leader who's able to think about what's the right thing to do and perhaps to take the advice of the bureaucracy and the mm. experts to actually think what is the best thing for the greatest group of people here and what's the morally right thing to do. What is the strategic thing? The problem now, and, and actually you brilliantly analyse where our politi politics are, is that I mean, I would take that, the, that Labor politicians would think about what's the best thing for the party before the nation, but they think about what's the best thing for my faction, and then potentially what's the best thing for my career, then what's the best thing for the party, then what's the best thing for the nation, or what's the right thing, or what do people who actually know what they're talking about say? Mm. And then what happens is that the kind of work that I do, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even begin to denigrate the people in my profession who generally do their job extremely well. We're not responsible for what people do for the work that we do. How they take that is up to them. Um, what happens is that the kind of work we do becomes a weak excuse for bad decisions. So this is exactly what this, what did you call it, plebivote is. Pleba survey. Basically, they're putting us all through this process. So people within, not just, People within the, uh, the Liberal Party, particularly, who won't stand up, can have something to point to one's, one way or the other. And so that's a terrible misuse of the work that myself and my colleagues do, which is generally pretty good work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If um, you would like to ask a question, put your hand up, and uh, if you find a microphone in it, start talking. Anyone? I can't. Oh, down the front here, lovely. Thank you. Um, in your opinions, do you think that the current dialogue and rhetoric based around fear rather than fact is natural for humans or has it been deliberately fostered by the media and politicians to distract us from the real facts we should be scared of? You know, growing inequality between rich and poor, lack of social mobility, political and corporate corruption, etc. Or is that a crazy conspiracy theory? <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, I think on the one hand, it's perfectly understandable that people may feel more comfortable with what is familiar. 
I don't think there's anything surprising about that. That's probably a universal disposition. The, the, the transaction costs of inter, interacting with a familiar environment are going to be lower than those of interacting with an environment that seems thoroughly strange and unfamiliar. But where I think we run into a problem is where people uh, become fearful of anything that's different and become hostile to anything that's different. Because in that way, um, people are sort of losing opportunities for enrichment that can uh, arise from encountering the unfamiliar. Frankly, if, if, if you only dealt with the familiar, we would, we'd still be eating grass. We'd never touch a pineapple. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd still be eating steak and counter lunches rather than pizza. Yeah. <laughs> and Thai food, that's what we'd be doing, wouldn't mm. we? Mm. I think the human mind, we evolved to seek, to, the, the familiar was safe. Like it, there's an evolutionary basis to why you look like me, you are my tribe, you are safe, you are different, you are not safe. So there's an evolutionary basis to that. But I think, you know, hopefully we are still evolving as people. And at some point we need to say, well, just because something is different doesn't mean that it's bad. And I am going to choose to find out a bit more information about this and take personal responsibility and go, I actually don't know much about that group of people or even maybe what I'm being fed is not the full story or the, the entire picture and I'm going to seek more information. And that within all of ourselves to say, I'm feeling a bit anxious about this, I'm going to do something about it instead of going, yes, that anxiety is right and they are the problem. Uh, from way at the back here, I've got the microphone. Um, we, we, I was intrigued clever survey. The question is to me about what's currently happening by way of change or evolution in Australian politics. And using that term, could I ask each of you what you think a possible positive result from this clever survey on the basis that it is a connection between an idea and the people as a whole, the plebs. <laughs> uh, if it goes ahead, is that a good thing? Uh, and if it goes ahead, what's the best way you think the Australian people could handle it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I suppose um, one of the things that I'm hopeful on it, about it, even though um, it's kind of disastrously conceived, well, look, I hope that there is limited damage done to people whose, you know, families and um, very sense of being are being kind of put under a kind of scrutiny that's unfair. But separate from that, there is a bit of a, a bit of a perception in across politicians that Australian, the broader Australian public kind of don't care or are kind of apathetic or won't, can't, you know can't be bothered to, you know, put something in a mailbox on this. And I hope that that is proven not to be the case. I think I would hope to see um, this as well, as as much participation, regardless of outcome, in this process as possible. To say to politicians, you can't just play games and the electorate sit back and, you know, switch from MasterChef to... Um, some other kind of reality television show. That's what I would hope, that it might um, disprove their view that we're just all, we don't really care about, especially if it doesn't affect us, right? 
that only the kind of extremes are going to turn out for this. That's what I would hope. I think there's that possibility. Um, I really hope that um, there's a lot of discussion about this is going to be a mature debate. I think that's already that that horse has bolted. But I do hope that from the point of view of the people arguing for yes, that um, we conduct ourselves in the best way possible. That's not putting up with abuse, but that's also just trying to actually have constructive conversation. Get off Twitter all the time. Have constructive conversations with anybody that you know who might be on the, on the fence about it, um, um, and, and also encourage people to be involved. So that's what I think would hopefully be a good outcome. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on uh, a simple yes, no, issue like this, the best way in which to get an accurate measure of opinion in the electorate is actually a sample survey with about 2,000 respondents where all members of the population being sampled have an equal probability of being included in the sample. Yeah. And I could do the, that for you for $15,000. Yeah. <laughs> and I can, I can do it for you for $15,000 and I'll give you a discount. Yeah. And I can do it in two weeks. Absolutely. And nobody has to do anything. Nobody has to do anything. That's right. Well, Rebecca, I mean, I have to do something, you, you and I get be, somebody else to do it for me. You should be doing <laughs> it. You should be doing it yeah. to compare with whatever results. Well, we will be actually. Yeah. We will yeah. be. Yeah. Mm. Because the, uh, uh, an exercise of the kind that's being mounted by the government now is uh, statistically meaningless, because uh, if you have a non-compulsory. Uh, uh, response. Incidentally, the arguments Turnbull was using the other day in favour of that would also be very powerful arguments against compulsory voting, mm. but that's yeah. another point. <laughs> uh, uh, it, you, you run the risk that those who respond are those who are passionately committed on one side of the debate or passionately committed on the other side of the debate, and you lose the middle which a properly designed sample survey will actually capture. And Which I could do for you for $15,000. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it's actually methodologically no better than these kind of yeah. polls that they have on mm. Channel 9 yeah. where they say, yeah. if, you, if you like X, ring up this number or text mm. this number, and if you like Y, text that yeah. number. They're absolutely meaningless from the point of view of, of social science. A total waste of $122 million. Mm, absolutely. I, in terms of what, what do we, I think the ideal outcome is, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if the High Court challenge of what happens with that. But I, th I think, ideally, if this goes ahead... I mean, it's frustrating because there have been enough surveys to so the majority of Australians do support same-sex marriage. So we kind of already have, you know, probably statistically significant data that says this is what should be happening. But if this has to happen to get certain politicians and their factions on side, then I hope that people do turn out to vote. This happens. The politicians then cannot ignore the plebe survey that they enforced. And then this happens and then we stop this horrible debate because it is horrible for the people who are involved personally, but also the people who care about them and around. And for our society, it is outrageous that this issue is still dragging on now. And if it means we can do this and it finally ends, then that would be a good thing. The big winners are going to be the lawyers because we've just seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of litigation mm. surrounding yeah. this process too. Mm. And it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see the numbers in a culture where every, every other vote of this kind is 
compulsory in relation to that obedience yes. when yes. Australians are let off the hook, yeah. uh, how many actually, actually uh, yeah. turn up? Yeah. Uh, gentleman here. Hi there. My name is Len. I'm actually a business advisor, a teacher and trainer. Uh, just Could you talk into of, the mic? Sorry, some of your comments earlier. I just went back in time a little bit. Uh, I used to be in CPA Australia and I went to a um, academic briefing on ethics. So a lot of the things that has been talked about, about business ethics, the globalisation of really bad behaviour with the global financial crisis, what's happening in the CBA bank at the moment. I think I did hear a comment. We're uh, going to need a question. We've got okay. two minutes. So do you think there is an opportunity to develop more ethical and value training in our school and academic institutions? Because I, I see a really sad loss in all of those things. Thank you. <laughs> Susan? I mean, I, I suppose... Well, who doesn't want a more ethical society? I think that would be great. Everyone would love that. I suppose it's tricky with schools and schools already and teachers feeling they already have a very overcrowded curriculum. You know, is there space to, to add one more thing? I suppose it would be nice for those of us who are parents to actively invest in teaching this to our children ourselves and, and try to create a more ethical uh, world from the ground up in our own families. But I think, you know, very few people would say, you know what we need less of, it's morals and ethics. So yeah. I think that is something everybody would support. How we execute that, like I'm an academic and I see now we fight to make any subject compulsory for students. It's always an argument. So it, at some point, I suppose, as individuals, if not children, but then as university students and as an adults, we have to opt into that. You know, we have to sort of say, this is something that we are going to invest in and value. On that question, I don't think we need a secret curriculum. I think there is, and certainly you would know here in Victoria, a move much more at primary and second school, school level to think about what they call soft skills, which aren't actually soft. Issues around um, respect of diversity, collaboration, creative, innovative thinking. And so there's much more of a sense that we create a much better workplace, especially given the rise of automation, where we actually teach people critical um, problem-solving skills and radical empathy as, as skills that are kind of shot through every single subject that we might do. So I don't think you necessarily need a, ne a separate ethical stream in education. You need to build the kinds of skills that lead to better, more effective and ethical leadership in everything we teach. Mm. I think we need to be careful. I think we need to be careful about uh, approaches that might set out to teach people what to think, but it's very important to have opportunities for people to reflect on how to think about ethical matters, whether we use a sort of practical ethics without ontology or whether we think in terms of rights or whether we think in terms of consequentialism. And these are actually big questions with which students can actually uh, engage very fruitfully. Uh, to what extent might one sacrifice the rights claims of somebody because of a desired future consequence? Uh, and uh, these, these sort of meta-ethical questions are actually the foundation of any serious uh, reflection on particular challenges as they arise. It has been a terrific uh, conversation. It has gone so uh, fast. Uh, uh, it's uh, really been a 
terrific conversation. You've opened our minds, but not too much, William. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, please thank uh, Rebecca and William and Susan, and thank you. Thank you very much. Apologies for the audio quality on that one, and thanks for listening to the Fifth Estate podcast. Coming up in the series, we go straight from Bendigo to Melbourne Writers' Festival with a couple of great conversations about Hindu nationalism in India and America's declining power in the Middle East. As always, you can find a hundred more episodes of this series, as well as videos of most events, at wheelercentre.com. Until next time, take care. Take care.